This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is a Thursday, the 26th of October, and here's what we've got for you today. Going to jump straight into our top stories this morning. It is earnings season, so we've got the numbers from Meta overnight, our Facebook owner, Instagram owner, and of course some local companies as well. Dubai Bank's doing really, really well. Going to get some thoughts on that. And Dubai doing well-ish in a ranking of global cities. Rudolf Lermeyer of Kearney Middle East going to be joining us. Right, what else have we got for you? Thoughts of Neil Gray. He is a government minister from Scotland in the United Kingdom. Still part of the United Kingdom. He's been in the UAE to sign a trade deal. What else can I tell you? We are going to be talking real estate with Faraz Ahmed from JLL. And finally, the price of beef has hit a record high on international markets. So we have been speaking to a butcher, Daniel Wannes, co-founder of Carney Store. All that to come. First up there, let's jump straight into our top business stories. busy show this morning. Uh, we are going to hear in the next hour from a man who sells steaks. That's on the back of rising beef prices in the US. How is he tackling them? Uh, we are going to look at bank earnings here in the UAE. Uh, very shortly, we are going to hear from one bank CFO. And we are going to have a look at Dubai's place in a list of global cities. Let's start with the banking, actually. Getting The Economist's view before we turn to those of ADIB. Uh, Katija Hack works for Emirates MBD and as such she can't actually comment on the numbers of her own bank or any competing banks. But we wanted to know from a macro perspective, she's the chief economist at Emirates MBD, what we could learn and what she'd taken so far from the UAE's Q3 earnings season. The rising interest rate environment over the last year has helped to boost profitability at banks in the region, particularly as strong economic activity has also helped to increase loan growth. There's also been plenty of liquidity in the banking system in the UAE with very robust deposit growth. We had data out from the Central Bank of the UAE uh, yesterday showing that money supply rose almost 14% year-on-year in August. That's running faster than the uh, headline loan growth, suggesting that there is still plenty of excess liquidity in the system. Rich, you've been speaking to one CFO. Where from? From ADIB, Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank, getting his thoughts on uh, what's going on because they were one of the banks to report great numbers. The, the banks have done really well this earnings season, but over the past 24 hours, there's three that we've been covering. There's probably another one that we've missed. Uh, here's the headline, ADCB, Abu Dhabi Commercial Bank, Q3 profit hits a record on strong loan growth, nine-month net profit of $1.6 billion, not dirhams, dollars. Uh, you've got a commercial bank of Dubai doing really well. CBD, nine-month net profit rises 46%. And last year was a good year, OK? This is not off a low base. And Adib, Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank, it is the largest Islamic bank in the nation's capital, and their profit increased sharply as well. So there's... It's clearly a pattern here. But we had two uh, the day before yesterday. We had all yesterday. Uh, we had rack bank profits up. I haven't even got the number in my head, but it was quite significantly. The banks have done really, really well. So we spoke to the CFO of uh, Adib Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank, Muhammad Abdul Bari, and this is what he had to say. 
So we're very happy with the outcome. So uh, in, on a year-on-year -year basis, as you mentioned, 53% up year-on-year. And I just can summarize into three main categories. One, we are a very client-centric organization. Hence, our product offerings are very much tailored to the clients. We are the first bank who've offered, for example, 15 years of uh, fixed profit rate home finance. And third, we are making life easier to our clients by providing them with digital solutions. So putting that all together, you see the outcome coupled with a very resilient economy where the client confidence has been absolutely fantastic. The CFO of Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank, Mohammed Abdel Barry, on there. Not just their stellar Q3 numbers, but a stellar Q3 for the banking sector. And But you'd say for corporate UAE as a whole, the real estate companies have done well, the telecom companies have got well. I mean, the numbers are still coming in. We haven't had them all yet. But it's been a good earnings season, Brandy, has it not? Uh, look, it has indeed. And, you know, I mean, you drive around town, feels uh, busy. Let's see how that is reflected in the rest of the numbers to come. Speaking of numbers, we've got a new ranking for... For Dubai, it comes from the guys at Kearney. Who'd you speak to, Tom? Spoke to Rudolf, who is in Saudi Arabia, Kearney, Middle East. Uh, they have just released their latest cities index. Uh, Dubai remaining in the top 25 for the third year consecutively. Let's get uh, confirmation of that. Uh, asked Rudolf Lermay from Kearney, Middle East, what position has Dubai come in the rankings? Uh, and what's this about a big shake-up compared to the traditional hierarchy of the rankings? 23rd this year, still the leading city in the Middle East. Um, all of the Middle East countries have risen. And the shake-up is a function of the fact that we're in a world that is fragmenting. We're in a world where the possibility of working remotely has somewhat diminished the magnetic pull and the necessity of cities in some ways, and in which generative AI has made access to, to computing power so universal that medium, smaller size, rising global cities are increasingly competing with the larger ones. So Dubai gaining, uh, is that the same with, with cities across the GCC? Um, we are seeing gains from cities across the GCC and, and also in a number of cities in other regions that were previously not as strong. The top five have not changed. They've not changed for some time because of the, the depth of their systems of connectivity to the world that are so exceptional, the, ex the extent of their diversity. New York, London remains in the second place, but in the GCC and elsewhere, a new tier of cities is emerging. Brussels, for example, for the first time reaching the top echelons. So what's Brussels and these others going up the rankings doing right that others aren't? Many things. But in terms of the outcome and the metrics that led to this change, human capital is probably the area that rose the most. The obstacles to mobility from COVID have changed, but even beyond our expectations, human mobility has increased. And many of the cities that are rising most quickly are rising most in that dimension. Uh, certainly in Dubai, we see the great influx of people from other countries, um, but even in Riyadh, where I currently sit, and elsewhere in the region. So, as you know, the Global Cities me measures the extent to which a city is global in its connectedness. And in, the ter in terms of human capital, that means the diversity of the people working and living there. Rudolf Lamai, the uh, from Kearney, Middle East. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We will welcome our next guest in a bit of style. Because he is Scotland's Cabinet Secretary for Wellbeing, Economy, Fair Work and Energy. 
The UAE's just signed an MOU with Scotland, collaborate on a variety of issues, including clean energy. Uh, and so we have the man who held one of the pens, Neil Gray. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for that. Welcome. I think I've brought the Scottish weather up here. I think there's going to be some rain today, which is good. But you've, you've given me bagpipes as well. A very, very uh, 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 homecoming uh, tight welcome. So I appreciate that. Yeah, a can of iron brew in the uh, green room yeah, for you. When indeed, you yes. No, no, no. Bottle. Never a can. Is yeah. it now? Thank oh, you. well, okay. Yeah. I, I'll take it however it comes, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. Let's have a look at what you are actually doing here. Yeah. Um, the MOU that you have just signed with UAE officials, what's it looking to accomplish in practice? So we've got a very strong existing trade and relationship between Scotland and the UAE, one of our uh, fastest growing uh, markets. Uh, but we want to build on that. We want to increase that trading relationship. So the MOU is about uh, uh, really solidifying and cementing what is already in place and, and seeing uh, faster progress. Also looking at expanding the investment opportunity going in both directions and sharing uh, the knowledge uh, and uh, skills and expertise uh, that there is between our two nations. We're in a similar position, oil and gas producing uh, countries with incredibly uh, well-skilled workforce. We want to see a just transition uh, away from oil and gas and to renewable energy. The UAE is in the same position, uh, so we're looking to work together and make sure that we're sharing best practice in those areas. Okay, well, let's start with the investment front. Mazda's got a 25% stake in your £10 million offshore floating wind farm. It was all sorts of firsts and, and records when it was launched. What can we learn and take from that? So uh, I met with Mazdar's uh, chief executive yesterday, uh, looking at how we might be able to uh, see further expansion in their investments and their involvement uh, in Scotland, particularly looking at uh, hydrogen. Uh, they're also interested uh, in battery storage uh, as well. So what we're really keen on is making sure that we're taking maximum economic advantage uh, from Scotland's renewable energy uh, potential, making sure that we're partnering uh, with businesses, uh, companies, investment partners and uh, other governments to share best practice and also the investment uh, potential that they're clearly here is here in the, in the UAE uh, to make sure that we're reaching our, our joint goals, which is to reach net zero in our case by 2045. What could that knowledge sharing actually look like, though? I mean, investment we get, joint ventures we get, but when people always say, oh, no, no, we're just going to share best practice, I think, what, two people are going to sit in a... <laughs> A room, someone takes notes? Uh, so I, I met with uh, senior government ministers uh, yesterday as well and making sure that uh, we uh, are, from a just transition perspective, uh, sharing our uh, our situation in Scotland in terms of what, what we're doing with the Just Transition Fund, what we're doing with uh, the Energy Skills Passport, uh, making sure that there is an understanding there in both directions uh, and I've got visits uh, today with businesses that are looking to invest here in Scotland and in, uh, in, in the UAE, Scottish businesses like in t uh, 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 IGS that are doing vertical farms uh, to make sure uh, that there is an understanding of the UAE market, uh, but also where we've put in, in place uh, policy objectives uh, that can be helpful to the UAE, uh, then we're obviously looking to be as helpful as we possibly can and to learn from the work that's been done here as well. Okay, well let's have a look at what's going to happen as we get a little bit closer to COP. Mm. A delegation of nearly 20 uh, net zero businesses coming out to the UAE for the event. What are their goals when you take a bunch of companies to an event like 
COP, what are they realistically trying to get out of it? So I think um, they are a dynamic set of businesses that are, uh, some of whom are established uh, here in the UAE as well, others that are looking to get established. Uh, They're all involved in some form or another in the net zero agenda. It's about trying to make those connections, about trying to uh, build uh, bridges between our two countries. As I say, we're on a similar path, Uh, but also internationally. um, This is a a massive uh, conference about making sure that we are reducing our uh, impact on the environment and addressing the climate emergency. So we're about looking to make sure that we are making those connections, making those networks uh, around the world uh, and build upon the work that was done at COP26 in Glasgow, at Sharm el-Sheikh last year, uh, and really take forward the, the Scottish government's agenda, but also the work that's been done here in the UAE as well. Yeah, because you have to get it right, don't you? If you're a company going mm. to COP, uh, there's a chance you're taking you know, a, a bunch of people. They're obviously flying there. You might be building a stand. All of this has a, a carbon footprint. How do you get COP right as a corporate? So I, I think it's about making sure that you are signed up to an agenda which is decarbonising, uh, that is about sustainability, long-term sustainability. We know that those businesses that are looking at environmental sustainability are going to be the ones from the long term that are going to be most financially sustainable because the market is shifting, the consumer behaviour is shifting, the expectation around what products are offered and the way that we do our business uh, is shifting. I, I expect that will be the case here in the UAE as well as it is uh, back home. So it's about making sure that we're responding to that, understanding what people are, are, are expecting of us uh, and uh, uh, ensuring that you know, the agenda that's being set for COP, which I think is, uh, is incredibly ambitious, has been followed. And you've got previous, obviously, when it comes mm. to hosting a COP. What did Scotland learn from doing it that we can gain from? So I I think the eyes of the world being on uh, the UAE, there is obviously going to be a huge amount of international attention, uh, making sure that we remain focused uh, on what the outcomes are, what you're actually looking to achieve is going to be incredibly important. I know, having spoken to uh, the ministries yesterday, that that is absolutely the case. They remain absolutely focused on uh, developing the funding uh, that can help uh, to ensure that there is that decarbonisation uh, going on, particularly in the oil and gas sector. So I think um, the, the UAE has got incredibly ambitious plans for, for COP. We're very proud to have uh, such a strong Scottish delegation as part of that, and we will look to do what we can to partner with uh, countries like the UAE, UAE that have got this central agenda of de- decarbonising to uh, do what we can to support that. Uh, 40 seconds left with you. What's the after effect of COP on a country and an economy post Glasgow? How has it changed Scotland? So we've got um, obligations that we need to meet um, and making sure that we continue to have that leadership role, uh, for instance, on loss and damage, making sure that those that have done the least to contribute to global climate uh, uh, impacts are supported um, by those that have done the most, in our case, the industrialised world. Any last minute practical advice? Buy more biscuits? Put on a couple more metro trains. Uh, I, I think keep doing what you're doing. I, I think it's incredibly uh, inspiring the work that's been done already. I was told yesterday they have 35 days to go, 34 days now. They're very much on the countdown and, and looking to make sure that it's a success. And Neil Gray is Scotland Cabinet Secretary for Wellbeing, Economy, Fair Work and Energy in the studio this morning. He's in the UAE for the first time, I understand. Uh, been signing an MOU to collaborate on a variety of issues, including 
clean energy. And of course, speaking to us about the realities of hosting a COP. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, we have been talking warehouses already this week. Obviously, ain't a day goes by without some chat about all things real estate and property. In fact, we were talking luxury property yesterday with our friends at Eldar just uh, uh, a few uh, just yesterday. Uh, but let's turn our attention to commercial space if we can now. Why? Because landing on our desk is JLL's Q3 2023 UA real estate market overview and some really interesting findings from this one, including the fact that new projects uh, here are set to ease pressure on the commercial real estate demand with an expected delivery of over 100,000 square metres of office space in Q4 of 2023. So literally, uh, as we speak at the moment, uh, let's get the latest from uh, the Associate of Research at JLL Mina, Faraz Ahmed, who's been kind enough to join us of Microsoft Teams. Morning, Faraz. Good morning, John. Thank you for the invitation. No, good to hear from you and uh, good to see a, a focus on commercial real estate, something that's been talked about a lot by our listeners and viewers. What's what's spurring the, the demand, well, the supply and demand issue here in the region? So currently, we have a lot of demand from new market entrants, as well as a wide variety of mixed divers, I would say, from mixed industries. And that is having a positive impact on the uh, demand, which is increasing rents. Currently, there's less space available within the CBD region of Dubai. Currently, uh, the average vacancy within the CBD, which we call the Central Business District, is close to 10%. And hence, the rents have been increasing quite steadily. Uh, in the last quarter, rent increased by 11% year on year, and they currently stand at around 2,300 per square meter. Looking at the sort of deliveries, and just going back to that sort of Q4 um, uh, delivery that we mentioned, a delivery of over 100,000 square meters of office space by the end of this year, are, are deliveries coming through on time at the moment? Are a couple of deliveries running over? And, and what can we spe- expect before the end of the year? Well, within Q3, there was roughly 46,000 square meters delivered in Dubai. This was in uh, one grade A tower, and then there was no completion in Abu Dhabi. But looking at the future in Q4, we're expecting close to 75,000, sorry, 72,000 square meters, which is expected in Dubai, and around 41,000. You can expect around, let's say, 50 to 60 percent of this space to be delivered by the end of the year, and the remaining to be moved on to the next year. Um, and just casting our eyes down to Abu Dhabi, as you mentioned, no deliveries as yet, but about 30, uh, 36,000 square metres of retail space delivered in Abu Dhabi as well. Uh, again, is that been a, a vibrant market down in Abu Dhabi? Yeah, the retail market in Abu Dhabi has been quite positive. And what we are seeing over there is that the average rental rates for the primary and secondary malls in Abu Dhabi increased by around 5% in Q3. And uh, there has been a mixed, again, range of occupiers, whether you call retailers in the retail industry. And the landlords have been quite flexible in Abu Dhabi in terms of uh, offering incentives, as well as being selective of what kind of tenants they are looking for for their retail spaces. And let's turn attention, if we may. So spoke about commercial, spoke about retail. What about our dear friend, residential? Uh, More growth? In the residential sector, we have performed really strongly last quarter. Uh, what we saw was there was a lot of increase in transactions you know, and in the in both Dubai and Abu Dhabi, almost 50% increase in transactions in value compared to the same quarter of last year. And this has resulted uh, in a positive uh, increase in sales. 
we saw the sales prices in Dubai increase by around 20% and the rentals increased by around 22%. But what one thing very interesting in the residence sector, what happened last quarter was we saw the average villa sale prices inc- increase by almost 8% compared to its last peak in 2014. So that's a significant increase in the villa sale prices that was recorded last quarter. We know that um, villa townhouse uh, apartment sales are in demand at the moment. We're seeing the boom uh, across the UAE at present. What about looking forward, though, as well? I mean, I know that you and the team at JLL look to look at the, uh, the supply and demand issues as well. Do we have enough supply for the demand over the course of the next couple of years? Yes. So looking at the future supply, we're expecting close to 13,000 units to be delivered by the end of this year in Dubai and another 2,200 units to be delivered in Abu Dhabi. So we have a a balanced supply and demand analysis uh, or a a balance right now, which is going to result in a robust performance in the near term. Um, and obviously, we hear a lot of the headlines coming out of uh, Dubai with regards to uh, the uh, residential records being broken left, right and centre. We had Alda here in studio yesterday. They had a big event yesterday here in Dubai. Uh, Abu Dhabi also seeing demand when it comes to residential. Are they keeping up? Yes, in Abu Dhabi, specifically the new islands, the in, in, uh, investment zones, those are the ones which have seen the, a lot more interest, especially the new the projects that have been launched in the villa and townhouse category, they were the ones which got absorbed into the market very fairly quickly. And on an overall city level, Abu Dhabi saw sales prices increase by around 3% and rentals grew by almost 1%. Uh, so obviously, this. The, apologies, I, I interrupted you there, Faraz, but we are uh, what, one minute remaining. Just wanted to get your final thoughts on, obviously, this is looking at Q4 of this year. Already, I'm sure you're looking at the beginning of 2024. Tourism numbers high at the moment, demand high. Is that expected to be continue into the new year? Yes, we expect the demand to continue uh, performing robustly into the new year. Uh, Faraz, got to leave it there for now, but can't thank you enough for your time this morning. Uh, As I mentioned, the new report is out. So uh, if anyone would like to get their hands on the latest statistics from JLL MENA region, uh, then all you have to do is search for the uh, JLL's Q3 2023 UA real estate market overview. It gives you uh, a perfect uh, look at uh, all the different sectors within the property and and real estate markets uh, across the region and what's happening on there. And as you've heard, tourism numbers up. That's feeding into uh, the uh, retail and hospitality areas and 2024 outlook is good just the highlights this is the bite-sized business breakfast now we turn our attention to a commodity story and this is the headline that grabbed my attention this week on cnbc beef prices are at record highs and that means your burger and your steak are going to become pricier. Let's speak to a butcher now who has some insight on this. Daniel Wannis, co-founder of Carney Store. Morning, Daniel. You can call me cow founder. <laughs> I like where you're coming from. What's happening to beef prices? Um, yeah, so it's, it's a trend that's been going on since we've come out of COVID, actually. We're at about 33% higher than we were in 2020. And uh, it just doesn't stop. A variety of factors driving it, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to mention about the American ones. But yeah, it's uh, it's quite crazy right now. So I'm looking at the numbers from uh, and these are the official U.S. numbers uh, from the Food and Agriculture Organization in the United States. 2020, the average price of bovine meat, which is essentially uh, cows, was six thousand nine hundred. 
Now we're at 8,800. What changed? So a lot of things have changed. First of all, global demand for beef, and uh, driven by China, like a lot of other demand, uh, has just skyrocketed. And we're at all-time highs. We were expecting a CAGR, which is a, a, an annual growth, of about 4%, but we're sitting at about 5.6 to 6.5 right now. So the demand has gone crazy. We are seeing certain crazy weather patterns too. We're seeing droughts where we don't expect droughts. Uh, we have uh, seen disease as well. There are a lot, of, a lot of factors coming into it. And so the demand supply curve is all out of whack. So what does this mean about where you source your meat from? Because I'm looking at, again, this data and the price of Australian again, bovine meat, to use the technical term or the economic term, versus United States of America beef versus Brazilian beef and so on. They are different. How is this impacting you and where you source your meat from? The beauty of being here is that we can take full advantage of globalization because we don't have our own beef programs for meat. I mean, we have beef programs in the UAE. We have, uh, sorry, uh, cow programs in the UAE for dairy and Saudi. We don't have it for meat. So we are able to source now. We source mainly now from uh, Australia, uh, Russia, Argentina, and we've gone away from the U.S. in the last year, two years or so, uh, because of what's going on over there. What is the difference in, in, in being candid and honest in terms of quality? Is it all interchangeable or is there a difference in Brazilian beef versus American versus wherever else it may be? No, it's again, it, there are a variety of factors. So you can get actually Brazilian beef here in the UAE has a reputation for being a commodity beef, uh, more of a supermarket beef. But you can get very good programs out of Brazil. It depends a lot on a variety of factors. Genetics, again, number one, genetics. So we go to uh, a lot of the British breeds like um, uh, Angus or Hereford. You know, those are the more premium breeds for meat as opposed to cows that are for dairy. And so you can create a good program anywhere where there's a lot of rainfall. You can create a good program and you can get consistent meat. I mean, you go to McDonald's all over the world and a cheeseburger tastes the same, right? It doesn't mean that they're sourcing it from the same place. It's just about the program that you put in place. So what are you doing in terms of sourcing? So we source based on a variety of factors. So we source based on uh, genetics. Uh, we source based on animal, animal welfare. Very important for us to have that, that retractor, the approvals. Uh, we also source based on feed. You know, feed is very important for us. Why? Uh, because, again, feed, it, it will tell you the health of the cow. And in essence, it will tell you the, the health of the product that you're getting. For example, uh, more grass in a cow, grass or silage, means that it has five times more omega-3s than a very heavily grain-fed uh, cow. So feed for us is very important. But that will make it more expensive. It will make it more expensive if it's done right. It will make it more expensive. Again, most of these cows are finished on some sort of grain. But again, heavy grain feeding is not good for the animal, and it's not good for us as humans as well. A lot of these cows that are fed for five, 600 days or more on, on corn or barley, they end up diabetic at the end of their lives. So what does it mean for the prices that you are charging or supermarkets here in the UAE are charging. Carney Store is uh, an online retailer. Uh, Carney, I mean, the, the, the name is... Latin is, for meat, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You are, you are a, a, a purveyor of meat that you sell online. If the price of beef has gone up, let's say, wholesale globally, 30% over the past three years, what's happened to your prices and the prices of your competitors, would so you say? Our prices at Carney Store have not 
gone up since we opened. How uh, can you do that? So it's based on being able to source at higher volumes and source direct. When we first started, we were sourcing through local suppliers. And now we kind of source um, direct. So, I mean, that, that we, we've saved 30%, and that 30% has come back, obviously, in the, in the, in the uh, increase in beef. But you will see commodity beef has gone up significantly. Supermarket beef, um, a lot of the other beef has gone up in the UAE significantly. So how can you manage to keep your prices where they are? Because you're running a business, aren't you? You've got yeah. to make a margin. And I'm sure the margin's not massive on what you do. No. So how can, you, how can you do that? Keep prices the same when globally the prices have gone up significantly? So you save where you can. So economies of scale plays into this big time, right? I mean, when, when we first started, uh, we, we weren't doing, you know, 500 kilos of, of, of beef a month. Um, so now we're, we're over 20 tons. So when you have that and you can ship, you can, you can buy out a whole container or an LD7 on an airplane, your shipping price What's goes- What's an LD, LD7? <laughs> LD7, LD3, those are ways of, of saying, those are the, um, uh, the containers that fit on airplanes. So an LD3 is 1,200 kilos, right? An LD7 is uh, 2,400 plus kilos. Those are the weights that people talk. And then you, you go up to a full shipping container, which is 18 tons, 18,000 uh, kilos. So the more that you take at once from one source, the cheaper that it gets. The, does, the, yeah, does, go ahead. Does it come by plane or by boat normally, both. the meat to the UAE? Both, both. So a lot of the cheaper cuts will come by, by ship. Right. So if you're talking about eight to ten dollar U.S. dollar, do you want me to talk in Durham? Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about uh, the, the 50 Durham a kilo or so, it, it makes sense to bring it by sea because you save two dollars. You save about uh, seven and a half, eight dirhams per kilo, bringing it by sea over air. However, it's an, if it's an expensive cut, like if you're bringing in primals um, like, let's say, tenderloin or, or ribeye and they're coming in at around the 120 dirham mark, then that seven dirhams doesn't make much of a difference. You'd, you'd rather be able to get it quicker, get it fresher, get it you know right up front by, by plane. Last question, 15 seconds, where are prices heading? Oh, I wish I had that answer, Rich. I really wish I had that. All I can say is it, it would be the same as real estate, right? If you can tell me where real estate's heading, I'll tell you exactly where beef is heading. Daniel, good talking to you. Appreciate it this morning. Beef prices are at record highs at the moment. Daniel Wan is, is the co-founder of Carney Store, which is a purveyor of meats. Appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us this Daniel. morning. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.